Good afternoon and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and we've got a fantastic show for you today. I'm so excited about my guest who's going to be joining me. And uh, I think it's, a, it's such an important conversation that we're going to be having today that I really, really hope you tune in for the whole thing because it's, uh, it's important that we begin to restore that relationship, restore the trust between our law enforcement and the people they serve, which is us, our, our communities. And so it's important we start having these conversations. Quickly, I want to announce um, that we are broadcasting live from KUHSDenver.com. That's KUHSDenver.com. Uh, we're broadcasting here from an amazing studio with all these incredible people giving you the best programs, not only here in Colorado, but also all across this country and all around the world. We are touching lives on every continent. People are tuning in from uh, Asia, Europe, Africa, South America, Central America, and of course, right here in North America. So thank you all for tuning in to the council and, uh, you know, re really seek to bring out the best, uh, the best shows and the best people on this program uh, in order to enlighten, in order to bring hope and to bring uh, a sense of community uh, to everyone involved. And so really appreciate you tuning in today. You know, I grew up in a, in a military family, as m many of you know, and uh, service was always a part of our, our nature. You know, we always wanted to serve. We always wanted to, uh, you know, put uh, uh, ourselves for a bigger cause. And uh, one of the things that's in, uh, in our family is that they loved to, uh, they were police officers, especially on my father's side. And they served with distinction and honor and uh, selfless service. You, you hardly knew they were actually police officers because they were so humble in, in, in the work that they did. And uh, some of them still do. And I remember the first time that, uh, you know, I'd, uh, I'd ever got pulled over by a police officer. And uh, I was scared, you know. Of course, I'm a young driver and worried about what's going to, you know, what is the, what's going to happen. I mean, there was this initial fear that I had. And I think that's something that uh, we all have. We all have this fear of the law, like we're, we're supposed to be afraid of them, and we're not. They're law enforcement, but they're also people like us who have families, who have uh, children, who, who want to have good things in life. And this is the, the job that they heard in their soul to that they were called to. They were called to protect and to serve. And uh, recently I ran into a, a fellow police officer friend of mine who uh, is an old-time family friend. And uh, he, uh, yeah, he actually, um, I, got, I got pulled over for running a stop sign. And uh, he pulled me over, and I didn't know it was him. And, of course, I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, that was my fault. I know I'd done it. And he came up to me, and I, and I recognized him, and he, he was an old-time family friend of ours. And we got into talking about his family, about what's going on with him, how's, how's life. And it just really brought to light how, how much they are a part of our community, how much the people that serve in the police are, are there with us. They live in the same, same neighborhoods. Their children go to the same schools. They, they have uh, the, you know, the same hopes, dreams, and aspirations as all of us do. And, uh, you know, they, they have a... They're, they're human, too. And it's something that has troubled me is all the, all the stuff that we're seeing on the news. And it's been a lot. 
And uh, we and we we want to talk about some of those things today too because there's a huge rift that's occurred because of the things that we've seen with the police brutality and some of the stories that we've seen on the news and uh, and so this has created this huge divide where we're not able to talk to one another and when we position ourselves in different camps and we're not willing to have dialogue we're not willing to have uh, conversations about really important things uh, that divide tends to get even deeper and we become more entrenched in those thoughts and you know the cops are they, they're terrible they're they're bad people and all of a sudden they become the monsters instead of them being human beings who are doing something that most of us couldn't even possibly conceive of doing. We just, it just, it's not in our nature to do, to go towards danger while most of us run away from danger. And that's kind of that warrior ethos that, um, that military guys and police officers, firefighters, and, uh, you know, uh, first responders have is this willingness to put their lives on the line to keep us safe. And, you know, I, there's a great quote uh, that I'd like to start off and uh, read before we get to our guest. And it just talks about, you know, the role of a police officer. And the quote says, you know, hey, police officer, I pay your salary. What do you make? I make holding your hand seem like the most important thing in the world when someone tried to hurt you. I make those annoying sirens seem like angels when you need them. I can make your child breathe when he stops. I make myself get out of bed at 3 a.m. to risk my life to save people I've never met. I make myself go to work for your family's safety, a duty that I will die for. I make myself work birthdays, holidays, nights, anniversaries, and disasters. Today I might make the ultimate sacrifice to save your life. I make a difference. What do you make? I think that really epitomizes the, the selfless sacrifice that police officers do and how they serve our communities and, and what they give. And a lot of times it's thankless. And so today we're going to talk a, a little bit about the police culture and how we can start to bridge this gap that has uh, gotten so wide. And my guest today, I met him uh, back in October, we had this veteran and first responder retreat out at Orcas Island in Washington, and it was an amazing retreat. Uh, it was first time that I think uh, that I know of where we had both police officers, firefighters, and first responders with veterans, and who all kind of have that same ethos, that warrior ethos, who are willing to protect and are wounded along the way and how we can come together to help each other to live better and happier lives. And I met Nick at the, uh, at the retreat and uh, just was inspired by his uh, absolute dedication to his, his, his career and what he's, I mean, this is something in him that he has dedicated his whole life to. And the challenges that they face and the culture, how it's affecting the culture. And I thought, you know, Nick, I'd love for you to come on to the show if you would like to. And he uh, thankfully agreed. And so I want to introduce to you Nick Bauer. He's a sergeant with the Seattle Police Department with over 26 years of tenure, including tours in patrol, precinct detectives, major crime task force, federal task force assignments, 
undercover operations, including a one-year long-term undercover assignment, homicide detective in the force investigations team that investigated all officer-involved shootings for the department, and robbery. Nick has been involved in a lethal shooting and has been involved in countless critical incidents throughout the years. He is the recipient of the Medal of Valor, Excellence Award, two citations, Inspiration Award, and Impact Award. Nick has surmounted acute critical incident stress-related issues and has now devoted his collateral time to helping other first responders through his work with Code 4 Northwest, founding the Lethal Incident Response Team for the department's peer support team, and now the Institute for Responder Wellness. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very honored you uh, chose to have me here. Ah, uh, it's my honor. It's really, truly, Nick, it's my honor to have you. Uh, Nick, um, if you could briefly just, you know, you've been working in law enforcement, <clears throat> excuse me, for over 26 years of honorable service. Could you share with our audience uh, a little of your background and why you chose to become a police officer? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, listening to you talk before uh, uh, I got on here. Um, it's, it's so consistent because I, I started off in uh, sales and I was a uh, commercial real estate broker um, way before I, I even thought of being a police officer. And, you know, that in that kind of time frame, um, you know, I, I wouldn't even say that I was uh, super pro-police. They seemed to like to stop me and accuse me of speeding. Of course, I never was. Uh, <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and you know, I, I guess uh, the only way to describe it is I, I couldn't feel the relevance. I was, I was solvent in the business. I was doing good. And, and for some reason, there was something else that I, I, I felt I needed to do something more relevant uh, in my life. And so, um, so the, uh, uh, I applied to Seattle Police, a couple other departments, and federal agencies. And um, uh, for some reason, they ended up hiring me. Uh, and um, it, you know, I never looked back. Uh, I had some fairly difficult assignments. Uh, there's there's nothing but challenges, and this it's not an easy um, it's not an easy profession to be mm-hmm. in, especially long term. But it has filled that need to be relevant and somehow maybe give back to, um, you know, society at large and, and um, you know, uh, meet that calling that I was, that was, you know, literally screaming in my soul. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that's very common. We all, you know, anybody who serves in, you know, whether you're a police officer or military, you hear that call, you know, and it's, it's uh, bigger than you, and you have to be able to truly, you know, come together on and figuring those how you're going to be able to, uh, you know, serve on a larger level, and it's and you can't stop. You 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 want to be, you want to be there. You want to you want to serve something bigger than yourself. And like I said, in my family, uh, on, on my dad's side, you know, we had a lot of relatives that were called to serve the police department, and uh, you know, they have served with immense distinction. I think they were head of the Denver Police Department down here. And, uh, you know, to be a police officer when I grew up was considered to be an honorable profession. You know, we looked up to police officers. We heard them when they came, you know, when they came to our school and they talked to us. And, and you know, you felt safe around them. You felt like these are the guys that were keeping us safe. And, uh, you know, 
there were certain qualities that I looked at. You know, they, they were, were trustworthy. They were loyal. They were, they were straightforward. They were straight shooters. And, um, and so what are the qualities that you look for and the characteristics you look for in your officers? And what is the code of conduct you expect your officers to uphold in the line of duty? You know, um, all the things you mentioned, of course, um, uh, in addition, I would add, you know, uh, 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 mentality of service, um, yeah, you know, um, someone who is, uh, you have to be more than just kind of honest, um, you know, especially nowadays, you have to be absolutely comfortable in, in being completely unsullied in your personal and professional life. Uh, you have to be even tempered. Uh, you know, at the same time, you also have to be, you know, one part lawyer, one part uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert, uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, one part uh, track, you know, fast track runner, uh, uh, an expert uh, um, gunslinger. Um, you have to be empathetic, part counselor, uh, psychologist. Um, so there, there are a lot of these little these features that, you know, they're, literally comprise um, each one comprises a, a profession that some people, many people just uh, occupy their lives with um, and you have to combine all of these things and do it very well on a consistent basis while um, also keeping your personal life um, respectable and, and honorable. So you know, a lot of facets uh, there is a model uh, that our recruiting uh, with Seattle and many other all other departments follows um, and in the end, he finds it's it's very difficult to find someone who is qualified to uh, to do the job. Yeah, it's uh, you know it, I think what you pointed out there is something about being able to balance the the job with uh, your personal life as well. That's such a critical component when you're working in these fields because what you're witnessing and seeing all the time is a lot of things that most of society never even wants to they 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 completely shun away. They completely you know, and, and that's. That's okay, but you know how do what do you tell your guys how to be able to, you know, clean themselves off to to you know to wash themselves from what they may have been involved with, what they may have seen, so they're not taking that into their families. Yeah, and that's um, you know, especially through some of my peer support code four institute work. Uh, we have occasion to go to talk to um, um, rookies who are graduating the academy, and right from that start, the, the simple way I put it is. You know, one year you are absolutely responsible for your emotional and, and personal condition, um, and in that spirit, it is much better and easier to put out little fires. If you're, you know, you're not coping well, or if you're, you know, um, you're isolating yourself, you're short-tempered, you're depressed. Take care of that immediately. Mm -hmm. Put out those little fires so that they don't build up, and they will, because there's a lot of stuff that comes into this job that's going to pelt you. Um, and, and avoid that, that big fire where all of a sudden your, your behavior is, you know, problematic. You're dependent on a substance, perhaps. Uh, your behavior gets you into uh, administrative or legal trouble. So, so I, I, I really truly preach, you know, that, you know, misery is optional. Um, and, and you have to work towards being positive. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, one example that might bring it home, you know, I'm obviously a certain way when I'm uh, in, in at the job, right? And at this particular time frame, I was in patrol, third watch, fairly difficult uh, uh, neighborhood, in fact, the worst in Seattle. And um, and one of my students who I became friends with, um, I, you know, once he graduated from 
from the program and everything. He was a full-fledged cop. I had him over for dinner to my house. My kids were roughly eight and nine, or seven and nine. So as he walked in, he kind of looked around my house, looked at my kids, and, um, you know, we ended up eating out in the backyard in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he comes up, he goes, man, he goes, I'm having a hard time reconciling because you're, you're so nurturing to your kids. I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, you know, I, I go, what you expect? Like a regimented, he goes, I literally expected your kids to be in suit and tie, standing at attention, you know, permission to enjoy the day with, with this new friend. Right. Um, it was an image that I had. And my point is that, you know, somehow I've been able to compartmentalize the two worlds, right? Mm-hmm. When I'm a, a police officer on the streets, I'm full speed and in that mode. And thankfully, I'm able to transition by the time I get home mm-hmm. and be dad, husband, neighbor, friend, yeah. regular, you know, chill guy. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's brilliant. Uh, you know, And I think it's such an important thing to understand. For those uh, officers that are listening and tuning in today, that's such an important thing to be able to learn how to be able to do, how to be able to to release those things and not let it penetrate or not let it infiltrate into your families, to be able to have that distinction and knowing those tools and those techniques to be able to release those things so that they don't become bottled up. When they become bottled up, that's when they become toxic and that's when they become a, a problem. If you keep pushing that stuff down, that's when the, the drinking or whatever may be, uh, the short-temperedness, the, that could come out. And you, you certainly don't want that to come out when, when, you're, when you have loved ones around. So, and Yeah, and I would argue that, you know, when you say keep pushing it down, I, I would strongly argue they're not pushing it down, they're, they're building it up. It's, uh, it's just like a pressure cooker. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult, you know, the, the work hours, it's shift work. Uh, the realities, the engagement that you have to, you know, the level of engagement that you have to be in mentally and emotionally at work. Um, yeah, um, you, you must take care of yourself. Um, it, it's it's, it's, it's going to get you sooner or later if you don't. That's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, Nick, what is the core reason a person joins a police force, in your opinion? You know, is there a, uh, is it the, uh, is it the um, adventure, is it the, dangers at the uh, experiences i mean because there are rich experiences uh you know what's the reason what was your reason for joining you know it was really that calling i do think there was a um it's more of a cocktail part of that cocktail the ingredients would be um you know attraction to something more physical uh, rather than just sitting at a desk mm-hmm. um and um you know the excitement was attractive i guess um you know, being able to, um, you know, uh, get paid to become an expert in, you know, gun shooting and wrestling and stuff like that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, that I, it was just a very, um, the whole thing just had a very uh, strong appeal, you know, peeling back to that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that sort of something that's very relevant. You know, you go to a call, you're not, we're not building uh, computers or software programs or pencils. Um, we're, we're delivering a service, and it's it's a huge puzzle. Um, it, I would argue it's a it's a craft that you really get engaged in trying to hone to be the best you can be. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's uh, you know if you uh, <clears throat> dedicate your life to something larger than yourself, it is right. something that uh, it suddenly every choice and every decision you make is geared towards living to that code living to that code of conduct. You know, like when I was in the military, we, we, 
our, our, our code at the academy was we will never lie, steal, or cheat, nor tolerate among us anyone who does. I mean, it was one of those things that was deeply ingrained. You, you lived a, a higher life, a, a more virtuous life, or at least you tried to. You at least you tried to attain that and, uh, and to live to a standard that many people in, uh, in, in other segments of life or in other areas of life couldn't do. And I think that's one of the things that really uh, attracted me, or, or at least I was drawn to the people who uh, lived that way. And that's why, you know, I think I joined the service. I wanted to live in, in that kind of uh, culture that enabled me to uh, live to what was best inside of me, to find what was best. Because I believe that I, the, my country or my community, my family, my, the people that I loved, I owed them my best. And if I wasn't giving them my best, you know, that was something that I had to look at inside of me. And so joining something like that is so, it, it leads you to those things to find out what's best inside of you. That's what I think. I agree. And by the way, thank you for your service. Uh, and thanks to any of your listeners who are veterans for their service. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do in the communities. Uh, there has been, as we know, Nick, um, you know, just recently there was an, uh, on a CNN report just this year, there's been seven law enforcement officers that have been killed since January 1st, four in, fire, in firearms-related deaths, and three in traffic accidents, according to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. And I think many people in our communities don't understand the risks police officers face on a daily basis. Could you do just describe and share what life is like working as a police officer in his or her community that most people are unaware of? Yeah, and, uh, by the way, that number is now nine uh, officers killed in the line of duty um, as of this morning. Uh, so, well, as of my checking this morning, uh, there wasn't a new one today. But so, you know, it's it's it's, it's horrific, right? Um, and I do think, well, I do think there is an uptick in officers being attacked, uh, you know, countrywide. It's always been a dangerous job. And if you look back 10, 20, 30 years ago, there have been a similar amount of number of officers killed in the line of duty. So it's, it's always been a very dangerous job, right? Um, and that reality, you know, when you think about you're going to, you know, um, say a domestic violence call, there are so many ways that things can go south mm -hmm. that can result in your being uh, injured or killed. You have to account for all these things. And so, you know, even little things like when I was in the academy and I've, I've relaxed a bit through the years, but, you know, they didn't want you to shake anyone's hand because I was committing your gun hand. And that's, you know... Uh, most civilians would think, man, that is really, um, you know, counter-social, anti-social, and it's off-putting, right? Yeah. Hello, officer, how you doing? And, and, you know, you get in this habit of not shaking their hand. You don't really have time every time to explain why you're not shaking their hand. <laughs> makes perfect sense to you, tactically, um, but at the same time, you have to balance, too. And, and like I said, I've relaxed, and so, you know, I, I shake more hands now than I did when I was a rookie, but it's always in the back of your head, you know, Okay, I, I got to make sure that you know I can pull back, and you know if this is an engagement or a setup or something like that, it's kind of this weird, you know. Uh, in any other world, you'd probably be uh, recommended to go to a counselor uh, because you got some elements of paranoia in your in your personality, right? But you have to be. You know, it's one part paranoia, 
one part empathy. Um, there's all these things, and I always say because you know some people have argued there. I've been some, those who have argued. Well, you don't get in a shooting every day, so it can't be that stressful. It's not that shooting actual event that's very stressful, but it's the prospect of what could happen. And your system, literally, your your fight or flight system is in some level of activation at the moment you get in, into your uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example, and it's, maybe it's a little personal, but every time to this day that I put my full uniform on, I have to go take a whiz. It's just like this. <laughs> Physiological, I guess I'm not trying to be too personal, but <laughs> I mean, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's this reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Fingers get a little cold, you know, you're, you have these stress reactions with no stimulus that's that's causing it right in front of you, but it's, you know, you're gearing up, or it's like, you know, and you know what that is. It's not unlike kind of um, almost like you're gearing up for battle, right. gearing up for, right. you know, some sort of impending peril yeah. um, that you don't know. You can't identify it. It may never happen. There are many officers who go through their entire career. They never have to get into a deadly shootout. Right. Um, and, and God bless them. I mean, I, I hope, I wish every officer could go through that. I wish I would be included in that, that, that group. Yeah. But um, it's that prospect that really, um, it causes a behavior, causes a, a reaction that you have to surmount mm-hmm. and be a personable, likable police officer to the citizens you serve. It's it's just a it's a very razor uh, thin uh, um, uh, balance you have to keep. Oh my! <clears throat> and you know you were you uh, when you talked about uh, when every time you put your uniform on that uh, you have to go take a take a whiz. I I think every time I have to do some kind of you know that, that reminded me every time that I would put something that I was getting ready where my fight or flight response was coming on and I was being energized or had I have to do the same thing. <laughs> it's just. That's something, yeah. yeah. But that's an everyday thing for for cops in the street. Every single day, you wake up. It's like, okay, you're putting a a gun on your hip. You're 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 volunteering basically to um, possibly engage in a deadly fight Mm -hmm. at any time. You know, during your shift, or you know, if if there are several cases where people follow officers post shift Mm -hmm. um, to to try to start trouble with them, and so you really kind of have to be on all the time and so that balance for living a normal somewhat normative life yeah. um, you know becomes quite the challenge because then you go home and you've got your you know your your spouse your wife your family your kids your dog and, and you have to change and be nurturing and you mm-hmm. know somewhat human like <laughs> with the people <laughs> that you love and um, have fun with right of course Nick when I was a um, <clears throat> when I was a kid like I said uh, we were taught to look up and respect our, our police you know that's what that's what I was taught in my family and lots of things have changed since then, and there's a huge divide that I was talking about earlier between police officers and the communities they serve. And part of the reason is the number of police brutality cases that have been broadcast over the news and the attention this gets. And the media has zeroed in on these police brutality cases over the years, including the murders of Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Eric Gardner, John Crawford and Mike Brown and others, which has brought a lot of national attention to this uh, a serious problem that has existed in the African between the African American communities and the police, and it's a problem that's been going on for decades. Unfortunately, what is your take on these issues? It seems like uh, Black Americans fear the police. Uh, what's your take on these issues, and how is this changing the culture of law enforcement? 
And, you know, I, I agree with you uh, in general. Uh, the only thing I, you know, obviously I'm just one one person in, you know, amongst, I think there are actually about a million officers in this in this country, yeah. uh, the continental United States. So um, I, I do think that, that social media has, has a huge part in this. You know, nowadays you literally take, you can, you know, multiple people will have their phones out and then news agencies and social media sites will take a little snip out of, uh, you know, a, a big incident, the most salient little snip that, that, that uh, frankly, I think uh, sells the most uh, copies, gets the most hits, whatever, right. um, and exploit that. Um, and so, you know, what I, I honestly, especially having been, you know, a force investigation uh, detective who investigated officer-involved shootings, um, I, I was... I had a unique perspective where I could see what was going on and what the actual fact pattern was, and then I could compare that to what, when I'd come home, what the media was portraying happened, right? Right. Um, and, and, you know, I guess, I guess by, it's, it's more of, um, I, I wish everyone could stop and wait until the a deliberate, uh, you know, uh, thoughtful, uh, process, investigative process was completed uh, before they passed judgment. Yeah. Obviously, inset into that idea is it, problematic because thing number one that everyone would have to have is trust in those who are doing the investigating, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I choose to believe, and I, I think it's, it's, it's barren, it's, 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 it's uh, proven itself out, out numerous times in my personal uh, background and observations the truth will come out. I, I believe in the justice system, the legal system, um, and I, I honestly, I, I don't know of a case, I'm not saying there isn't, I don't know of a case uh, nationwide where things have been, a gun has been planted or facts have been, um, you know, um, buried or changed or diluted um, in, that, that caused the investigation to lead to a certain result. Right. I, you know, time and time again, the, the truth does come out. The problem is, you know, we're not a, a weekly newspaper world anymore. We're a, you know, we're a few second uh, news spot world. Mm -hmm. And to me, the end result is, you know, it's very unfortunate because, you know, um, African-Americans, you know, they hear over and over again that police are out to kill them. Yeah. It's a horrible way to live. Yeah. Every time they see a police officer, it's, I mean, they might have to take a whiz themselves, right? <laughs> right, exactly. They got to go take not a whiz too. Not, not to make light of it, but it's you know yeah. it's causing a stress reaction, yeah. right? Um, and and so then, and then the police officers feel like, well, um, all of African African Americans hate me uh, because of what I am, and they think I'm trying to kill them. Yeah. So you know, in my personal world, I think that you know, police officers, given the realities of the world, I would argue we have a responsibility to uh, to be that friendly person you know you, you come face to face with an african-american and they're looking like you're you know super scary that they want to run or faint or something make yourself an approachable friendly person right yeah. while maintaining that tactical you know uh presence and uh, mindset at keeping that delicate balance um so you know i i also will say you know the media has influence in the world obviously all different iterations of media. <laughs> I would say the most powerful force in my life, my professional life and personal life, is personal interaction, mm -hmm. talking to people. If I go and see somebody um, and I'm in uniform, 
I seek them out. How you doing today, sir? How you doing today, ma'am? Uh, being friendly. Um, you know, maybe buy them a cup of coffee. Just mm-hmm. one of those random pay it forth, forth, uh, forward type things. Uh, but interpersonal interactions, I think, are much more positive than what media wants us to believe. Media or any kind of a political entity might want us to believe. No, I agree. Absolutely. You know, I think it's <clears throat> we have to take the power away from the people that want to keep us divided. <laughs> And we gotta we gotta go into like straight into the communities and reach out and start talking to each other. You know, the moment we can start talking to each other and recognizing this person is a human being just like I am, <clears throat> really wants the same things that I want. We all want safety. We all want to live in uh, security. We want to have uh, good neighbors around us. <clears throat> we want to be able to raise our children in, in safe environments, and we want to be able to, uh, you know, have good cheer and company when we're uh, you know with our friends and our family we want to have we want to live in peace i mean and in, in freedom that's what we want to live and so i really think it's about reaching out okay let's have those conversations let's meet these people talk to them get to know them you know get to know who each other don't be afraid to say you know hi hey officer how you doing today you know how's your day going or going out into the other you know reaching out what's your name uh, you know and and so that we can start to break this this belief that the you know they're, they're, these these communities are against each other when they shouldn't, you know, and it's just adding to the problems rather than finding ways to be able to to break its stranglehold on on uh, on our country and on, and on certain segments of the population. Yeah, and one just has to rewind just part of this show um, and, and and re-listen to you know what brings people into law enforcement. Um, you know, it's it's a calling. All that. Um, there are honorable reasons why, uh, by and large, why, why officers want to come into the business. People yeah. want to come into the police police business. There, there, there are some who, um, you know, slip through the cracks. There are uh, behavioral, um, uh, you know, knuckleheads, I'll say. Yeah. Uh, and I will also say, um, in my experience, that we are very efficient at thinning um, our ranks of those people. The, there are, the, the, the system has been, ever since I was... Uh, a brand new officer. Uh, I've never thought that I would get away with could get away with anything. Not that I wanted to. Yeah. And I've seen it bear out time and time again. People do stupid things. Officers do stupid things. And and just watch. They they are depressed. Mm-hmm. They are. Um, we, we don't want them. No one no one dislikes a bad cop uh, more than a good cop. Oh yeah. Right. That's so true. Yeah. You know. Because we end up left. We're left holding the bag. And yeah. We don't want to hold that bag. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we we uh, we call our herd. Uh, I I uh, think very efficiently of of those people. We don't want them around us. How is it impacting? How is all this news impacting the those great officers? Because there's a, the vast majority of those who serve and who are police are great people, amazing people. Just exactly you know the people who are called in that way and those higher values that they. They're, they espouse and, and they treat their job with uh, with reverence and respect. How is this affecting those who are truly wanting to serve their communities with honor, with integrity, and wanting to keep their community safe? Well, and just based on um, on the evidence that I know of, it's a, it's a national, uh, really a national crisis right now. Yeah. That there is no one signing up for um, the police job. Uh, there, there's deficit uh, ranks numbers in the ranks of pretty much every department in this country right now. So in Seattle's case, if you just take, keep in mind, um, and this is a general number, don't quote me on the number, 
a, a new officer, uh, their starting salary is in the neighborhood of $70,000, right? And it pushes up to eighty within a few months. And that's $70,000 while they're being trained in the academy, okay? okay? They also get health insurance, dental insurance, um, and to anyone in the audience, uh, if you are thinking about it, you know, we are hiring. <laughs> Just put that little plug out there. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Uh, shameless plug. Shameless right? plug. That's it, Nick. <laughs> yeah. But uh, this, is a, I mean, this is a high-paying job. And there are a lot of people who have advanced degrees who are starting at nowhere near that income, okay? Um, yet we are not having the, anywhere near the applications that we once did. Uh, we are at a, a major deficit. When I came on, the uh, there were 1,600 applicants for nine positions in the academy, okay? So that I was, you know, 120 years ago. Now we're lucky if we get 100 people showing up for a, uh, a recruiting um, physical and um, and uh, written test. Just 100 people? And it, won- it used yes. to be 1,600? Wow. Yes. Wow. So, so it is having an effect. A little bit more often, let's call it 300. If it's, you know, uh, more than once a quarter, um, it's, it's nothing like it used to be. Yeah, this, this used to be, this has always been a very difficult job to get into uh, through background checks. It's still as, it has to be as robust. We can't just lower all the standards mm-hmm. and let, you know, you know perhaps a, a convicted felon or someone who's not, you know, doesn't have a mental, uh, uh, emotional capacity to handle the job. Yeah. Uh, um, but it, it's, a, it's a crisis, um, and so that's the result, that we are not seeing the kind of quality people who are, you know, like me, solvent in a good career, yeah. who say, you know what, I want to go do something bigger. I, w- I want to answer a higher calling. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it doesn't help when you see, um, <clears throat> you know, we just had this week, uh, or last week, I believe, there was a, the Chicago police officer, Jason Van Dyke. Uh, who was sentenced to, last week to seven years of prison um, for murdering Laquan uh, McDonald. And then you have the, the Laquan's great uncle, the Reverend Martin Hunter, said in the New York Times there was a qualified victory that a police officer was going to prison for murder. But he said the sentence was far too short and reduced Laquan to a second-class citizen, end quote. And then on the other side, you have Van Dyke's family pleading for leniency. And his daughter wrote to the judge, quote, it's time for him to hug and kiss his wife and protect his family. Bring my daddy home. I mean, these are, it's a huge tragedy for both sides. And so, Nick, we've got to, we've got to find solutions to this. You know, we've got to find And so how, how we've already kind of talked about it, but is there anything else that you could say on how we can heal and bring together police officers and the communities they serve and restore these bonds of trust? Excuse me. Uh, you know, I and I'll and for the record, I I'm, I simply will not uh, engage in the merits of that case. Yeah. Um, on, in the spirit of, um, you know, I wasn't there. Not I wasn't an investigator. Wasn't involved. And uh, relying on you know a primary value of mine that we must trust the system, the legal system, the investigative process. Right. On both sides, as you mentioned, there there's a very, very emotional. Um, um, position and standing and, and opinion, um, and I, I feel bad for both sides. Yeah. I truly do. They're, these are huge, life-changing um, uh, scenarios. But again, we must not look at that. We need to look at what actually happened. Rely on the facts 
uh, as they were um, presented to a, a qualified court and rely on on the outcome, right? So we're back to that trust. The only way that I know of to to start to build that trust is to for for the citizens at large, collectively and individually, to be open to you know uh, the realities of police work and open to the the fact that. No police officer goes out there wanting to hurt people. In fact, quite the, the opposite. Police officers want to go out there and deliver a peaceful environment, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it, the interpersonal interaction is, is really the only way. Um, you know, if you see something, instead of taking it as gospel, you know, something on the news or social media, you know, seek out someone, uh, an officer, um, and ask them what they think. Uh, be open to like we are in all kinds of other, you know, beneficial relationships, be open to, you know, um, counterpoints and differing opinions and figure out how to have a kind of a Socratic um, uh, uh, conversation about it yeah, uh, openly without emotion. A, a little order. Socratic dialogue, right? That we need that. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah. you know, and I don't want to just delve into, you know, the philosophical uh, topics, but, you know, uh, even Plato, uh, when he lived, you know, he, he had his um, his work called the Republic, mm-hmm. where he had the producers, uh, who were the citizens at large, he had the warriors who were there to protect the citizens at large, mm-hmm. and to protect the community from other communities that might want to attack them and, and kill them. Right. And then he had the uh, guardians, who were the mayors and lawmakers and leaders, but the big point of that whole structure was that the warriors, if they went out and protected the citizens, the citizens would bring them back in uh, to the to the community, nurture them, you know, help them kind of wash all the fog and pain and scars of war, and and, and allow them to know that they are they're appreciated for the position they're in. Yes. And somehow, I, I, I'm not. I do think there are uh, societal and incidental is- uh, times in our, our our world history where that has actually played out. I would strongly argue that is not playing out today, right? The, the officer feels unappreciated, hated, uh, um, scary. The citizens feel like the warriors are scary and um, yeah. dangerous. Yep. Um, in that system, and I, I'm not saying that is the system we should be following, but as a guideline, I think we would all benefit if we kind of try to get back to that, at least that sort of a theme, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Healthy societies have a good relationship between their warriors and the community. It's a social contract that we have. It's it's unspoken of. It's unacknowledged. They're going out to serve and protect, whether that's your military, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a firefighter, whether you're a first responder, and you're going to get it's understood that you're going to be affected by whatever you're doing. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be wounded. There is no way. There's a, 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 I want to bring in this quote by a guy named Charles H. Webb, Dr. Webb. He says, there's no nice way to arrest a potentially dangerous combative suspect. The police are our bodyguards, our hired fists, batons, and guns. We pay them to do the dirty work of protecting us, the work we are too afraid, too unskilled, or too civilized to do ourselves. We expect them to keep the bad guys out of our businesses, out of our cars, out of our houses, and out of our faces. We just don't want to see how it's done. And I think that's, you know, when we have an understanding of that social contract, that 
warriors have with their societies when they go out and they come back and you understand that they may have had to do some things to keep us safe there's an appreciation level there's an understanding level yes we have to hold everybody to a higher standard but that doesn't mean you 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 make them out to be mob uh, thugs and mobsters and you know <laughs> it's not right you know it's just not right you've got to be able to help them to tend and heal their wounds help them to be able to feel appreciated for the things that they do, help them to understand and to, to reintegrate themselves into the community to feel like they are valued and appreciated and respected for the jobs that they do. And, uh, you know, it's, I think we could agree, Nick, that there are a lot of bad apples, going to be a few bad apples in, every, in any organization. You know, there's going to be in ethnic communities, in government institutions, in uh, religious uh, organizations, political parties, etc. There are going to be a few bad apples. But those bad apples shouldn't condemn an entire community or organization and destroy the good ones, too. You know, I'm an, I'm an Italian-American, and uh, the mafia has been uh, for a long, notorious history in America. Uh, most Italian-Americans have no allegiance to the mafia. But the media and entertainment could paint the picture that all Italians are in some way or another connected to the mafia. That wouldn't, that's not fair to all Italians. That's not, and to put all the Italians into that one category, and the same thing with all the cops and all the military and all the people. There are so many good people doing these jobs. And how much has the media social media impacted our relationship as a culture, excuse me, as a society, to the culture of law enforcement, Nick? Uh, you know, and as we've talked about here, it's, it's great. It, it's extraordinarily um, much more efficient uh, delivery of, of, of news stories um, than, than ever before in our, our, our culture, our, our, you know, our world history. Um, and um, and it's, 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 it's so efficient and you know, I my belief is you know the whole read the whole story, sit on Sunday and really look at all the facts um, is that that uh, mo is gone and now it's just you know log on to Facebook. Oh look, here's this crazy officer. They only take that little snip of the officer shooting somebody, and you know there's 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 a there's a uh, conclusion I think that people common citizens based on uh, what Mr. Webb wrote. You know, which I totally agree with that if you see someone get shot before you um, or beat up by the police officer or something like that, that's a horrible thing, right? It's awful. It's, it's, um, it makes your stomach turn. It's just not something that we want to uh, try to bear in our lives or see witness. Um, but I think there is a very common um, jump from uh, violent, scary, horrible, uh, awful to wrong, right? And um, and it's wrong. It is wrong. It feels wrong, but it doesn't mean it actually is wrong or unjustified use of force, right? We have a little. There's a saying in the business, not widely used, but we call it awful but lawful, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, we we recognize this stuff is awful. It's awful to the officer. Believe it or not, he's not enjoying shooting a fellow human being or yeah. you know fighting with them and hurt, injuring him or wrestling or whatever. Um, and but um, if, if, if we have, you know, and I go back to that center point, which I think is trust. If everyone trusts the, um, the, the system to, to, to ferret out what actually happened, the whys, the hows, 
the chronology, uh, the truth will come out. Mm -hmm. If it was done toward, uh, I believe that uh, it will be uh, brought to bear. Uh, if it was justified, if we have a, a level of trust amongst all of us, um, that, that can be the answer. It's like, you know what, that makes me very angry. I've, even if it is justified, you know, uh, you know Trayvon or um, Eric Garner's uh, family will never, never be happy that he, he lost his life, that he was, he was killed, right? Um, we're not asking for that. We're asking for understanding and then the courage to somehow surmount that. And, um, you know, God forbid, maybe we start talking about, you know, uh, forgiveness. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, finding a, the strength in ourselves, our souls, to connect with other people and, and, and process that um, all this, this hate and discontent and hurt and, uh, and help each other and get mm -hmm. to a place of forgiveness. We've seen it countless, countless times when, you know, a suspect or someone kills a loved one yeah. and the father, uh, wife, mother uh, sits before the court and says, I forgive you. You know, I, I don't want you to, I want to stop the pain. What a courageous position to have, generous yeah. and courageous. So, well, so that trust, we have to have that trust that the truth will come out. If we don't trust that the truth is going to be um, uh, brought to bear, I don't see how we can even start down that road of, of, of working some of these these huge incidents out. Yeah, I agree, and I, and I think it was uh, Martin Luther King, and I'm going to terribly paraphrase him right now, but I, I think he uh, said something to the effect that hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I think right. that that is the idea what you're talking about, is understanding we are human too, and we, we make mistakes, and uh, forgiveness is a key po component in anything. And building that trust up again, uh, you got to trust yourselves to do the right thing. you got to trust yourself that in every moment yeah. you're doing the right thing and, and you're doing it to the very best of your ability in every moment. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I think it's really important to let people understand, could, if you could describe for us, just, just as best as you can, because I want to kind of shift the gears here a little bit, on what goes on through a cop's mind when you're confronted with use of force situations. What's, what, what, can you give us a glimpse of what goes on in those moments? So you're talking about like, let's say for example, like a, where, there, where there's a, a, a gunfight, impending gunfight, is that what you're talking about? Impending gunfight, or you're unsure what's gonna happen, you, you may be a gunfight, it may not be a gunfight. What's going through your mind? What is it as you're alerting yourself? What, what's that, yeah, as you're about to, you possibly could get into a gunfight. Right. So let's, and that would be an extreme kind of um, sort of excluding any sort of investigative um, mindset that you might be having to uh, uh, infuse into the whole thing. But, you know, if it's something as simple as, you know, you, you look up and there's someone who has a gun pointed at you um, and you're, you're absolutely convinced they're going to start shooting at you, right? right. So uh, quite often we go into this kind of uh, the, the old brain, this, this, um, um, this survival mode, fight or flight mode, and if we are trained and we've, um, I, I would argue every officer is very highly trained and has repetitions and exposure, they will go straight to training and it's as simple as, um, you know, gun, you know, pull out gun, shoot, uh, and you shoot to stop, not to kill. And as soon as this person drops the gun or falls and stops being a threat, then you withdraw your stuff. It's, it's an intellectual explanation of, of, of a, just an extraordinary cocktail of, of emotions, hormones, um, 
you know, chemicals, uh, just uh, so much races through, um, you know, your system, your brain, your thoughts, your body in milliseconds. Um, but I will say in my experience in force investigation, I have been just uh, taken back by how correct these officers' decision-making is in just minuscule, you know, microseconds of time to to critically think the whole thing through and come up with a conclusion as to what they're going to do. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, you know, they get repetitions. You have more seasoned cops. They're better able to, they don't have to, you know, deliberately think about, okay, let's see the guy's got his hands in his pockets, lump in his pockets. Oh, that looks like a knife. It's all this sort of, um, you know, it's muscle memory and they, they can react very accurately uh, and uh, very quickly. So, um, you know, it's hard to quantify that and to, to the satisfaction of someone. Uh, what I can tell you is, and you see all these different uh, places that, that put news uh, reporters in these positions where it's like, okay, I'm going to give you a uh, paintball gun and, and you're going to do a traffic stop and just do whatever you have to do for this situation. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the person in the car starts shooting at them and they usually just crawl up at a ball and go, you know, oh God, or they right. massively overreact and just empty every paintball they have, you know, in their gun. Uh, and it turns out the person had a cell phone, right? Uh, so it's such a precision, um, you know, expectation and operation, you know, can only be accomplished through uh, extreme training, uh, uh, massive repetitions, and, you know, you probably want to throw a little luck in there, right? Yeah. Because what if all these things mean a certain thing? And, you know, there are wallets and cell phone holders that actually have, like, a gun handle on them mm-hmm. that they sell on, on the Internet, right? Yeah. And that, that gets pointed at you. You shoot that person. Your, your, your thinking was reasonable based on your training and your experience, but you were wrong. And so how do you reconcile that yeah. with the citizens, with the family, with the officers, with the law, uh, the legal system? How do you reconcile that? I mean, it's, they were wrong. They were thinking right. And, in fact, there's a, there's a, a, a pivotal case um, a, uh, uh, that, that actually sets that out, that, that the officers uh, thinking and if, if, they're, if, they, if their um, behavior and thinking was reasonable, uh, despite the fact that they may be wrong, they're still justified because it, it was a reasonable um, assessment of the situation. It just happened to be wrong, right? In this day and age, it's like, well, you were wrong, so you should go to prison, or we should just publicly flog you and hang you at high noon. It's, I know, I understand the tendency and the emotional reaction, but it simply is not the the proper conclusion, um, you know, to a situation like that. It's just amazing as you were describing all that uh, and just the emotional. I mean, the split second decision making that you have to do in those kinds of situations and the extraordinary pressure that you're under. Uh, I just have the greatest admiration and respect for all of you who serve. I just truly do, Nick. It's just my God. Uh, if more people put themselves in your shoes and the things that you are, you know, that police officers constantly have to face and that, uh, and that they're here to protect and serve us, I think that it will start to temper some of the, some of the uh, emotionality. You'll start withdrawing from the drama and the urgency of it just a little bit. And like you said, let's let's bring some cooler heads and, 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 and understanding to it because it's a tough job. It's a tough job. And um, yes. 
You know, I just real quickly, we are broadcasting live on KUHSDenver.com. That's KUHSDenver.com, uh, broadcasting live here in Denver and all through the nation and all around the world. The best programs, best shows, and best music here on KUHS Denver. And you're listening to this amazing conversation here on the council with Nick Bauer, who's a sergeant with the Seattle Police Force Department and has been on for over 26 years. So uh, I can't believe we're almost coming to the end, Nick. So we're going to try to get to some of these last questions. I want, to, I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, how do we make our citizens, you know, no matter where you are in the world, um, you know, it's, uh, if you don't have an effective police force, uh, there's not going to be a sense of, p- of peace and safety. And that's something that you told me at that retreat that we were at. And, you know, I think no matter where you are in the world, truly, you, we all want to feel safe and secure in our communities. How do we make our citizens feel safer and our police officers feel appreciated for the work that they do for us? Well, that's, that's not a small question. <laughs> uh, <you laughs> I know, wanted to I, give you I, the I big questions <laughs> right here at the end. So that's like, 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 okay, the weight of the world is on my shoulders that's in my decision-making it. process. <laughs> not unlike an officer-involved shooting. It's like, okay, well, let's see. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to rely back on that, you know, somehow can, uh, um, uh, finding a way for us. I, I think trust is, is trust and faith are the two elements that are, in general, I know it's kind of sort of uh, sneaking out of the question, perhaps, uh, but I, that's, that's, I think it's a spirit and a mentality that needs to change, mm-hmm. right? And I, as you know, uh, positive can overcome negative, um, um, you know, quite, quite easily uh, if it's practiced, right? Mm-hmm. So I would ask citizens and officers, um, just try to focus on building, building that, that element, trust uh, and faith. And, um, you know, for officers, get out of your, your patrol car and, and make friends, you know, be involved in the people. We're not an occupying force. We're not a ranger battalion. Um, and for citizens, be open to, you know, to these officers as humans, members of the community, you know, moms, dads, fathers, sons, um, both sides have to, you know, it's like, okay, let's, can we lay our swords down and, and, and talk yeah. and, you know, actually get along, um, that, that, that's my hope, really, um, and I'm I'm ready, willing, and able to contribute. That I think I have a pattern over the last now 27 years of uh, of trying to embody that in in my work uh, and in my personal life. Well, I think it's so important to find the common ground, you know, and the, our common ground is just just about seeing each other's humanness, seeing each other's you know <clears throat> reaching out, like you're saying. Citizens going in and talking, getting to know the officers that are in your community, getting to know their names, yes. getting to know, you know, uh, something about them. And, you know, something. anytime we can make something personal to us about somebody else, it takes that, that otherness away. You know, how we create an enemy is by making them something other than us. You know, this is, the Nazis were, br- were, were brilliant at this. And uh, they were able to, uh, you know, make uh, uh, the Jewish population someone other. And that just allows you to create the whole stories, all these narratives in your head about what that enemy is because they're not us. And I think we really have to start breaking that down a little bit. They are us. They just happen to wear a uniform. And the citizens are not against us. We, they are just 
you know, part of the citizenry that needs to be understand that we're there for them and that we want to protect them. We want them to make them feel safer. So I think it has to, to break down this not us kind of a thing that they're in one camp and we're in another camp. We've got to be able to come together and have those personal dialogues in your communities with the people that you serve and with the people who serve you. That's what I think. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't um, agree more. Um, Nick, you're the president of the, uh, of the board of directors of the Institute for Responder Wellness, which is, uh, for those of you who are tuning in and for first responders, it's www.institute.com. For responderwellness.com. That's Institute for responderwellness.com, uh, which provides life saving and invaluable resources for first responders so they have a healthy and happy career. Uh, Nick, could you briefly talk about the organization and the services you're, uh, you offer to first responders? Yeah, so the, the Institute is, is basically a, a, a giant iteration of. Code 4 Northwest, an uh, organization I've been involved in in, in, in Washington uh, for a number of years. And the basic model is we are a resource for first responders and their families, not just cops, but firefighters, corrections, dispatchers, uh, trauma nurses. Um, and we, we offer a, an array of services that starts with like peer uh, mentoring, peer support, just talking to somebody who's been in the business might give a kind of a different way of thinking things or just a, a, a safe place to kind of voice and, and uh, discharge some of the stress you might have. Um, on up to pre-vetted counselors, we actually find counselors who are um, sensitive and trained um, um, with, uh, to the uh, uh, unique needs of first responders. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, my wife might argue it's a good thing I'm losing my voice. But, uh, uh, and then uh, we also go on up to, believe it or not, there are a number of first responders. Uh, because of all this stress, they start to self-medicate, um, and we actually go out and pre-vet uh, inpatient and outpatient treatment centers to send the officers a safe place for them to go, so we can get them better and get them back uh, having a you know a happy life as happy life as possible. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an outreach program. It's a uh, it's a dialogue, it's a synergy effort to, um, to convey to first responders, um, when, you know, you're serving us, and the least we can do is do everything we can to help you in the spirit of that, um, of, you know, that republic that um, we were, we're, we're going to help you get back to, back to good. Right. So um, the, the Institute is a fairly new thing. We're still in the developmental process. It's a, it's a huge effort because it's a nationwide effort, and my value is I want to be very effective individually to any first responder that we are in contact with. I, I take I take responsibility personally for them, rather than just say, "Hey, we're a nationwide super cool thing." Um, that really doesn't matter at all to me. What it matters is boots on the ground, individual effectiveness. So we're growing very carefully, very slowly, very deliberately, so that our service is not diminished um, because of the you know the, the magnitude, the size of the operation. Yeah. So. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a 501c3. We take donations. All of the money that comes into uh, to uh, the Institute or Code 4 goes straight back out to help in the form of scholarships for uh, uh, counseling, scholarships for uh, maybe um, co-pays for treatment, um, even uh, maybe for airfare to get the people to treatment if they need to go out of state. Uh, very efficient, I would argue, one of the most efficient charitable organizations uh, in, the, in the country. Amazing. So it's my passion. You know, it's where I can make a difference. Um, 
it, it, it really it truly fills my heart and soul to be able to help some of these these, these heroes mm-hmm. who are putting their lives in the line and sacrificing <clears throat> their own well-being for the well-being of, of citizens at large every single day hour minute of, of the year yes they do that's amazing uh, amazing uh, uh, what you're doing Nick Again, it's the Institute for RespondorWellness.com, www.instituteforresponderwellness.com. Uh, check it out, please, and donate. It's a, it's a, a quality and organization that's helping the others, like you're saying, that they're go every day. They're facing challenges and circumstances that most of us would, would cower from. And before we go, Nick, I would like to be able to, you know, sh- share a little bit of the heroism. Chairman, you know, they're, they're, people forget how much that there's these daily heroisms that you see and you hear about that, that go undetected, that go completely unnoticed, that police officers all around this country are doing almost every day, little acts of heroism uh, all around the country that nobody knows about. Could you share just a few stories before we close out the show today? Yeah, sure. And, you know, just off the top of my mind, um, and I'm just working from memory, which, you know, the older I get, you know, the less effective it is, of course. But uh, <laughs> one comes to mind is, um, you know, when Hispanic uh, girls reach a certain age, I think it's 15, and I should be more culturally co- competent than this. Uh, the they, have, they call it uh, quinceanera, quinceanera, I think is what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. And if I butchered that, please forgive me. Uh, <laughs> well, so she, the family's coming back from this quinceanera, driving uh, away from this hall, they read it. It's a, very, it's a huge festive event. It's a big, pivotal part in a Hispanic girl's life. Well, there was a, a minor traffic accident. Dad rear-ends a car. Guy gets out. Dad gets out. The, the guy stabbed Dad to death in front of the family. Okay? Horrible. Mm. <clears throat> well, this officer who responds um, sees the gravity of the situation, does the investigation. Uh, you know, we end up getting the suspect, all that. And this officer, to this day, and this, mind you, this was 15 years ago. This officer to this day takes out of his own pocket to uh, provide for the family for her birthdays. Um, that following Christmas, um, bought them uh, Christmas presents, food, um, so they could have a complete uh, Christmas event. Um, that's, that doesn't go on any media story. There's, that's not on any, any news media story. And in fact, this officer I know personally uh, wouldn't want any credit, wouldn't want his name to be... Uh, you know, um, um, exposed in any way, it's straight out of his heart. Uh, I can't, you know, I, I just can't, uh, it, it actually kind of, you know, breaks me up even thinking about it, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's that's one. Another is a case that I went to. This kid was in a, uh, a temporary foster home, group home. Um, he was a little kid, and um, he was getting picked on by the other kids in the foster home, frankly. So, um, and then the, someone said, claimed that he threatened to kill him. He may have, out of desperation, he was getting beat up and shoved around. <clears throat> so I get there, and I talk to this kid, and I, I think, you know, I talk to the to the, uh, the, the person in charge and say, hey, well, have him come down. And I expected this big, strong, scary guy, just this little tiny guy. His, his, the shirt was dirty, hanging off him. His shoes didn't uh, fit. Just a defeated little kid. He was probably 13, 12, something like that. So, uh, you know, I try to give him some encouragement. Um, it's kind of hard, you know, you don't feel it, but it's like, man, hang in there, man. And let them define you. I spent some time with them and calm things down. The next day I went and told my children at dinner, and my children are very small at the time, mm-hmm. uh, literally maybe five and seven or something like that. They both went to their, their bedrooms, got their piggy banks, came back out, emptied them out, 
and said, "Hey, um, we want to buy them. We want to buy the, that kid some clothes." So that later that day, we went and I secretly, you know, remunerated them in their piggy banks. Used that money, bought them a couple of new sets of clothes, hoodies, shoes, jeans, all that kind of stuff. Delivered them to him that night. That kid was, um, and I, I kind of played with him. I said, "Hey, man, uh, I need you to come to my car." And uh, he's like, "Oh, geez, he thought he was going to get arrested, right?" And he's like, "What's going on?" We'll figure it out when we get to the car. So we walk outside, and I'm kind of a scary guy, you know. Yeah. I was at the time. Um, and so I, I open the back door. And he, he actually opened the back door getting ready to get in. And he goes, oh, well, he goes, you want me to move that? I said, no, that's for you. And he's like, really? He pages through, and he was just, he gives me this big hug. And he's like, he goes, so do you guys have a special fund? And I said, yeah, it's the, uh, the, the Bauer Family um, uh, Love Fund. Uh, this came from my kids. Oh. And I, I, I don't know if it changed the kid's life. I don't, I don't know, but yeah. um, talk about uplifting. I mean, and that's that was well pushing on twenty years now, wow. ago, and uh, it still it still uplifts my soul to think about that story and the generosity of my children uh, to try to help a, someone they've never met. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, and I can go on and on and on about stories like that. They they just abound. Just one officer. If you had ten officers from around the country. We can fill multiple hours of your show with similar similar stories. Wow, that's amazing! I got chills, and I'm uh, that's incredible stories. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Nick, for being on the show today. Uh, Thanks for you having just me. Uh, I'm honored. So honored. Do you have any bit of advice, real quick? One bit of wisdom, advice that you could give this audience before we go from your life experience? It's a question I ask all my guests. Uh, before we close out the show. Yes, it's, it's very simple. Be a nice person. <laughs> That's, that, I think, is probably one of the best ones that I've heard on this show ever. That's it. Just be a nice person. <laughs> Nick, thank you That's so simple. much. Thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege. Uh, and thank you for all you do and for all those police officers out there. Thank you for your service. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for sacrificing yourselves for us. And let's try to heal this division as best we can in our communities. It's going to take one step at a time. It's going to take uh, consistency. It's going to take a willingness to be able to see the person as another human being, not another, not, a, not as someone other than us. And uh, and we got to do that in our communities together, and not let uh, these other things divide us. Uh, it's so important. We need a society needs a healthy security force, police force, and it's important that we start mending those walls, you know, bringing those walls down, bringing those walls down. Uh, next week, thank you. Next week we will have another great uh, uh, guest uh, coming on, uh, Rick and Nancy Iannucci. They are from uh, Heroes for Horses down in New Mexico. Uh, you'll want to tune into that here on the council. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, may uh, The council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. Uh, God bless you all, and I look forward to seeing you again next week right here on the council. God bless. <laughs>